My name is Neil Rockin. I'm a trial lawyer. My nickname is the Rockweiler for my unique courtroom style, and I love cross-examination. I love it so much that I started this podcast, the Killer Cross-Examination Podcast. And week in and week out, we bring to you the very best trial lawyers in the country so that you can hear their approaches to cross-examination, their feelings about it, their war stories, and more. And this week is no exception. I didn't have to travel very far to find this week's guest. It's none other than Detroit's very own Steve Fishman. If you're from Michigan, you know Steve Fishman. Steve Fishman does killer cross-examination. Steve, welcome to the podcast. All right, Steve Fishman, welcome to the Killer Cross-Examination Podcast. Full disclosure here, um, I'm thrilled to have you here. And uh, in my own little way, I tried to model myself in little tiny bits and borrow a lot of your material over the years. So this is your chance to reclaim it and do it better than than I was doing (laughs) when I was in court. Well, it's good to be here. From what I understand from you, You've had a lot of people on this show that I respect, including Roy Black. That's my number one guy I wanted to mention. So uh, I'm ready to go. All right. So, Steve, I have um, a great admiration for you and what you bring to the table in a case. I think that you're one of those lawyers that can really be a game changer. Um, And we know some cases where you have been in the case and maybe prosecutors should have gotten you out of the case and you have applied your skills. And I sort of, and, and I'm a great admirer of that. And I want to sort of get a little background from you about what you think makes you such a, a great cross examiner and such a great lawyer. Well, without going into whether or not I'm great, I I think that for any lawyer, uh, there are a few things that they have to do if you want to be effective. Yeah. Number, number one, as I tell the young lawyers when I talk to them, they should raise their right hand and solemnly swear that they will talk in English and not legalese. After they put their hands down, I make them stand up and put their hand up again and make them solemnly swear that they will be themselves and not try to be somebody else. And I think that those two things uh, to begin with are things that every lawyer can adapt to. Not everyone talks like they were raised on Roselawn and Seven Mile and went to Mumford High School just the same as there's not people who lived in West Bloomfield, went to Cranbrook. They have a different life experience. They have a different way of being. And as long as they remember that the jurors are regular people and you want to talk to them in regular English and you want to act in a way that's consistent with your personality, I think everyone has a decent chance of success. Problems occur when people either freeze up and start talking as if they're talking in a law school class or they decide, well, you know, I saw so-and-so in a movie and I think I'll try to be like Al Pacino or Joe Pesci when in fact there's some guy who's pretty much a square and there's nothing wrong with that. There's a ton of real square lawyers who recognize that's the way they are. They present themselves like that and they have a lot of success. So let me go back if I could, if we could, and give us sort of the the 60 second, if you can, background story of where you started, where you grew up, uh, I know you mentioned Rose Lawn and you've uh, made a, a good joke at one point that really resonated with the jury in one of the biggest cases that we've seen here in federal court, which is when Jeff Figer and, uh, and Ven were actually 
prosecuted. Um, and you really sort of brought home that you're a local guy. And I thought that really humanized you in a lot of ways to the jury. And so those who don't know about Roselawn and growing up in Detroit, tell me sort of where you started, what that meant to you and, and, and how you've sort of developed from there. It's really pretty simple. Where, where we were raised, we went to elementary school, junior high, and then we all went to Mumford and we had a mix of kids, uh, probably unique. Uh, I always joked and said we had in our senior class, 50% Jews, 50% blacks, and three guys got kicked out of UD high. Uh, pretty much anybody that was white was Jewish if you went to Mumford. Uh, the mix of people and just the entirety of the mid-60s, I, I can't ignore the effect of Motown. I mean, all of us going on the bus, riding down to see the review. Uh, and then just in general, I think athletics, basketball helped a lot because basketball, obviously, is a, you might want to call it a black man's sport. Not so much anymore with all these great European players. But you, you learned how to talk to people that weren't necessarily the same as you. And I think there was a comfort zone that was established right from the start, uh, particularly at Mumford High School. And it's carried over for me. I'm pretty comfortable around anybody. And I think we can't ignore the fact, by the way, and a lot of times people don't want to talk about this, but, you know, being Jewish, Jews are a minority, a very tiny minority in this country. And when I went to college in particular, and then when I started to get out in the world, I realized you've got to be a bit of a chameleon. Black folk are, have to deal with it all the time, obviously, but we don't have color to distinguish us. And I think that you learn when you're a minority, uh, you know, you hear certain comments that people who don't know you're Jewish make. It's not the same as being black because anybody that's not blind can see the person is black. And I think that helped as well because once I started trying cases, particularly when I went to federal court, where the majority of the jurors were white and not Jewish, I had to have a way of talking to those people the same way I could talk to the fellows and to the other Jewish folk at, at Mumford. And that was a big help as well. I think that people who are minorities, uh, if they recognize that they're in the minority, I think it's a good thing for them. And I think it gives you the uh, opportunity and then hopefully the ability to work with other people who are in the majority and to be able to talk to those people without them looking down their nose at you and thinking, oh, who is this guy? Who does he know? He's from Roseland. But you, you actually, I don't want to say you took a conventional path to get to, to become a, a criminal defense lawyer, um, but you, you did at one point join a defender's office. Right. When I, came, when I came out of law school, you got to remember, Neil, you know, because of the war and because of the draft and because my father and his brother were naval officers in the big war, I didn't know what I was going to do till December the 1st of 1969. I didn't have I, I didn't have the money and I certainly wasn't going to do it anyway. I'm not Donald Trump or Dan Quayle or all these rich guys who could buy their way either out of the draft or into the National Guard. So I didn't have any plan at all until December the 1st of 1969, the first lottery, and I drew number 317. I never played the lottery for money because I figured if that was a pretty big win and that'll never happen again. So when I went to law school, I didn't like it at the beginning because it was boring. Property, contracts, torts. And then my second year, uh, and keep in mind, again, I could stay in law school because nobody believes this when I talk to the young people or the young law students. I borrowed three grand from my mother and paid three years of law school at Wayne State, $900 a year. So it wasn't like the kids are now where they're going in debt unless they've got wealthy parents. So second year, I was lucky. I had two classes. The only two classes I really remember from law school 
One was taught by Paul Borman, who's now been a federal judge for many years. He was my criminal procedure professor. And the second one was evidence taught by Michael Josephson, who became a, I guess, world-renowned ethicist, wound up moving to California. And those two classes got my attention. And I realized, hey, here's something I can do. It's criminal law. It's defending people. I'm comfortable around guys who got in trouble. It's not like I didn't know people who were getting in trouble. And that's really what changed everything for me. I learned everything about evidence and how to conduct yourself as a lawyer from Josephson, uh, who I should just toss this in because both my kids are now in law school and they're still teaching this acronym, IRAC. I learned IRAC, the issue, the rule of law, applicability of the facts and conclusion. That's what distinguishes lawyers from regular people. Lawyers learn to do that. Professor Josephson taught it to us with that acronym and I never forgot it. Obviously here it is 51 years later and I was telling it to my kids when they started law school. Um, were you a guy in law school who talked and raised your hand and argued or were you a guy who sat there and just like didn't say very much? Because we used to have the kids on one end of the spectrum that were just a hand raise every time and then everybody else in the front row there, if this and what if that and what if this and what if that, then you had the other guys that were sitting there and looking at everybody else like, please stop slowing down the, the lecture. Where were you? I, I would certainly have been in the second group, but you have to remember again, <laughs> once I knew what I wanted to do, all I was trying to do was graduate. I got the book award in evidence because I loved it, you know, and I was there all the time and blah, blah, blah. Everything else, you give me my C or C plus and let me move on and go to the defender's office. Because by, well, after, after my second year, I got a job at the defenders as a, they call it a researcher, but essentially a clerk. And then I went right from that to working there when I passed the bar and I stayed for two and a half years and then I went on my own. But that was invaluable experience. I probably had 30 jury trials, maybe in that two and a half years, which you can't do anywhere else other than in a prosecutor's office, right? As you know, you know. Um, right. And, that, and that's a big deal because you get to make your mistakes. You get to find out your comfort zone. You know, these young people that come out and they think they want to be trial lawyers and they're going to go put up a shingle you know, they're going to try DUIs maybe, but you're not going to have, you know, homicide cases and just big time cases dealing with police officers, not some guy who stops a, you know, a kid from walking down the street with too much to drink, but from coppers who are in the mix all the time, you know, and they're experienced officers, they're experienced at testifying and you learn. So you were, what was your first, I mean, in, at one point, like full disclosure, uh, I don't think there's a better cross-examiner out there than you anywhere. And I think I've told you that to your to face-to-face. -to -face. I mean, I've told you that um, to the extent that there are, you know, it's like someone says, who's the best golfer you ever seen? And someone says, oh, you ever, you ever played with this guy? And of course, he may not have played on tour. Maybe he never went. You know, there were guys I knew growing up were playing golf, and you never wanted to show up at a golf course because, you know, they were like the guy that is, it, it was almost like, is he showing up? Like, is, 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 is Josh going to be there? And if he was there, everybody else just packed it in because it was. And I think you for second place, you meant. Is what and, you're I, and, I, and I think you have that reputation in Detroit, obviously, Michigan, you're extremely well known. Um, and what's amazing also is that you're not someone who really pays attention to like the 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 legal eagles and the giants and the big names all across the country. You really focus on what you have to do for your clients. Um, and I know that because I could give you a quiz about some of the, these other lawyers that have been on the show. And other than Roy Black, you're probably like, who and why and what? And I have a, a lot of admiration for that. And so I, I, I'm hoping you can kind of look back and think, when was the first time that you, 
you, you got into a courtroom and you said to yourself, this is for me. Like, not only is this for me, but I'm exceptionally good at this. I, I, I don't know that I ever said, quote, I'm exceptionally good at okay. this. When was the first I time that, I, that you said, I'm the, I belong here, this is for me? I, I think it was real early. Um, I can tell you this, when I first started at the Defenders, Mizell always had all of us do exams. You got to remember in those days, recorder's court handled everything. There was no district court. And I would go into the courtrooms, for instance, Chuck Ravitz's courtroom, Sue Borman's courtroom, Sam Gardner's courtroom. And, and I, I would tell the judge ahead of time, I'd say, look, I, you know, I think I got some idea what I'm doing. I want some constructive, I don't care what kind of criticism, give me the criticism when <laughs> we're done. And the judges were good enough and nice enough to do that. And that was a big help. I, I, I can't put a finger on when it was that I felt I really had some idea what I was doing, but um, I never felt uncomfortable. Let's put it that way. And that kind of let me know that things were going to be okay. I had no idea I was going to wind up where I am today, but I never felt uncomfortable. And I think a large part of it was because I've always been pretty comfortable on my feet. I think part of it, and I don't mind being in front of people. I played the piano from when I was little. And, you know, I had to play in front of adults when I was seven, you know, that kind of thing. Basketball obviously, obviously helped with that, too, because there's nothing like playing at Central High School and people kicking you when you're taking the ball out of bounds to start realizing, hey, there's a lot of people here that don't like me. <laughs> that's for sure. <laughs> so I, I think I think that I was comfortable right away. Obviously, in terms of acquiring the skills, you got to understand, Neil, Mizell Soul as our boss at the defender's office, even when I was a researcher, he was the greatest boss you could ever have. And that's why you see so many former defenders that went on to become judges or, you know, pretty big shot lawyers. And one of the things that Mizell let us do, even when I was a researcher, we were right across the street from recorder's court. So if you had spare time and a lawyer, Norman Lippitt was in trial or some of the lawyers, Warfield Moore, Ruth Ritter, who were really fine lawyers in our office, Mizell would tell us, go. And I would go and I would sit and I would watch. I was present in the courtroom and Norman Lippitt was handling the Raymond Peterson case, a completely hopeless case. And just some of the things that he did, I was rooting for the prosecutor actually, because Peterson killed civilians for no reason. But th the point was you had the opportunity to see and watch. And then because you did exams first, you know, you couldn't screw up too bad. The guy always had the right to a trial, no matter how bad we screwed up. And you just got an opportunity to, to practice your, your craft. And I think that's what a lot of young people miss unless they go to a defender office or a prosecutor's office, because you just don't get in the courtroom enough. Right. And, and you, you, you learned, not only was the evidence, it seems something that you were interested in in law school, <clears throat> but don't you agree that the lawyers that know the rules of evidence when they're in court, they seem to have such an advantage. There's absolutely no doubt about that. It is astounding to me how many people, for instance, don't know how to use a document to cross-examine, don't know the difference between refreshing recollection and refuting what the person says. Don't know, for instance, you don't have to show it to them anymore. Back when I started, you did have to show it. Before you could ask a question about a document, you'd have to show it to the witness. They changed that rule, I don't know, 30 years ago, 40 years ago, whenever it was. Obviously, those of us who tried cases kept up with those things. And what happens in addition to the fact that you know what you're doing evidentially, the judge who you're trying the case in front of gets a recognition quickly that you know what you're doing because that that is such a critically important thing when you're trying a case in front of a jury. It doesn't make any difference if the judge likes you 
It doesn't make any difference if the judge agrees with your theory of the case or your judge wants the defendant convicted. But if the judge respects your knowledge of particularly of evidence so that you're not interfered with constantly or that if you are interfered with by a prosecutor who doesn't know any better, the judge looks at her and says, hey, overruled. I've said that 17 times. And then the prosecutor looks bad in the eyes of the jury. So the knowledge of evidence is very important, but most particularly how to impeach people and what documents to use and how you use them. That's the thing I see that people screw up the most. Well, tell me more about that. And I want, I want to lead into, first of all, as a backdrop, how many trials have you tried? Just misdemeanor, felony, federal, how many trials do you think that you've tried to jury up to this point, if it's even countable? It's, it's, it's impossible to count. You got to keep in mind, prior to sometime in the 80s, when they changed the rules and made let the prosecutors object to bench trials, you just have no idea how many bench trials there were in recorder's court. You got to remember, you were out there in Oakland County. The judges in Oakland County stink. You're in Macomb County. Those judges stink. You can't wave juries in front of them because they didn't, you know, you, you would never trust it. What we did in Wayne County in recorder's court is what I'm speaking about. It was commonplace. You still tried the case. You still fought it hard. And so did the prosecutor. But you, you had an opportunity to try a lot more cases in those days, because if you tried a bench trial, the, the, uh, the judge didn't punish your client for going to trial. You know, when you try a jury trial, I'm not saying every judge goes, I'm giving him 10 more years, but you know, as well as I do judges, if they think particularly that you didn't have much of a defense, you could look for uh, lesser included offenses or lesser cognate offenses in a bench trial. But the answer to your question is, I, I, it's got to be in the hundreds, you know, that I tried jury trials. I don't know how many federal court jury trials I've had. It's a lot. I tried eight in one year. I remember that. And I know one year I tried 10, if you can imagine, 10 homicide cases in recorder's court in one year. I remember that. Uh, a couple of them were bench trials, but at least eight were jury trials. So, you know, I, I don't keep track. Obviously, as time has gone on, I've tried less. I don't go to state court anymore, which is where you have the majority of your trials. And quite frankly, with technology, and the inability of the defendants to stay off of social media, uh, it's much more difficult to try a case now in federal court. They collect all that stuff and you put your guy on the stand, it'd be one simple question. They show him with a bag of dope and an AK-47 on his shoulder on Facebook and all you ask the guy is, is that you? And that's the end of the case. <laughs> so, so we have a lot more pleas these days than we did in the old days. All right. So there are some things that so I've had the pleasure of actually watching you in trial and trying a couple of cases with you. And there are some things that I think that are really important that people can, can, can learn. If they can't learn the specific, they can't copy you, they can at least learn the general principle. And something you and I have talked about in the past, first of all, um, about note-taking. How many times you walked into court and you've seen some lawyer sitting there when a witness is testifying and the guy's just got his face buried in a legal pad and he's just like a scrivener. So how do you, what do you do when you're, when, first of all, what do you think about that? Uh, I have my opinion about it. And second, what do you advise or what do you do when a witness is testifying? Do you sit there and I, I know you're not just writing notes constantly, or are you actually doing something different? And if so, what? Well, I can tell you, it, it, it basically came from what my father taught me, when I first started playing basketball, he said, son, you got to keep one eye on the ball, one eye on your man and one eye on the clock. And then we would laugh, right? Because <laughs> you only have two eyes. The, the, transferring it to, to trying a case, you got to keep one eye on the witness, one eye on the jury and one eye on the judge. 
that doesn't leave too many eyes for sitting there being the scrivener. The court reporter is taking down everything. You don't have to worry about that. What I do is I listen. And what I see too often with young lawyers, or not just young lawyers, lawyers in general, they're not listening. And they're not watching the effect on the jurors. I watch the jury, not obviously so that they think I'm staring at them, but I keep my eye on that jury all the time. When there's direct examination of the prosecution witness might even be their key witness. I'm listening and I'm watching. And the judge kind of is in the off, you know, on the other side. I don't pay that much attention to the judge. But you cannot sit there with your head down scribbling because first thing the jurors notice it. And the jurors wonder to themselves, I'm sure, what's this guy doing? Didn't he know what this guy was going to say? Didn't he have reports, et cetera, and so forth? And number two, when you get up, which people who are scriveners almost always do, when they get up, they've got a list of questions that they wrote two days ago, 50 questions. They haven't been listening. They've been too busy scribbling. Now they get up and at the third question, the witness gives an answer that's the opposite of what they expected. What do they do then? They look at the fourth question. They look up. They look around. They scratch their head. Sometimes they ask for a recess. I mean, it's the worst possible thing you can do because you know as well as I do. If you're going to cross-examine somebody, you better stand up and make it very clear, A, the guy's full of shit, and B, you know he's full of shit, and C, you're going to show them within the first 10 or 12 questions how full of shit he is. That sounds kind of crude, and it sounds a little crazy, but if you can do that, I'm telling you, I tell everyone, oh, if these are young lawyers that are listening to this, if you can do that, the jurors start looking at each other and looking at you in a different light, and that's why I do not recommend... What you wait, let me say one other thing. Yeah, please. You do want to take if a juror says something every now and then. Well, I shouldn't say every now and then. Most of the time, a juror is going to say something stupid, and then you, I, I, oh, I, I look, I look at the jurors and I write it down. Then I highlight it with the yellow marker, and then when I get up, I'll in the part of the in part of the cross examination, I'll read it to the guy and say, you know, I'm pretty sure you just said I don't write much down, son, but. I'm pretty sure you said such and such and such. And then you cross-examine on that issue. And the jurors, when they see you, look, look at them, right? And get the highlighter out. They think, oh, this must be important. I can't wait to hear what this is all about. Those kinds of little things make a big difference. So something that you, something I've heard you you talk about. So I think cross-examination is the most, is the most interesting, important part of every case. Now, I think that just because I've grown to recognize that and appreciate that. Um, but something I heard you once do in an opening statement, um, which I thought was really brilliant, which is where essentially you, and I, you can walk us through it, you basically told the jury, look, direct examination is direct examination, and you can do the rest, and you know where, where I'm going, and you talked about it in a way that I swear, and I want you to do it for us, after I watched you do it. There wasn't, a, there wasn't a single juror that was paying attention during direct examination. <laughs> they were sitting there, filing their nails, picking a cuticle, maybe trying to pull a loose eyebrow hair or something like that, looking at the clock, fidgeting with themselves. But then you stood up to cross-examine and all eyes were on you and the witness. And I thought it was such a fantastic way to highlight how important for jurors are. You did it in a funny way, too. You did it in an amusing way. So if you would walk us through that, because I think this under this this really highlights the importance of cross-examination and how lawyers can in real life sort of limit the impact of a of a direct examination to a jury. Well, the, the first thing you, you just pretty much hit on it right there at the end. 
you got to remember that the most important thing, the only thing that's going to get you acquitted is going to be cross-examination. If your person, particularly in federal court, if they don't really have a case on you, they're not going to indict them or they're going to dismiss it. They're not going there to lose. So they're coming in there thinking they got a great case. The second thing that you can count on in federal court, because they're all anal, is that they have spent hours with the witnesses, particularly the important witnesses. They have met with them. They've gone over each and every question. And you know that going in. So knowing that that's the case, and it applies most of the time that I've done that's been in federal court, because the state court prosecutors, quite frankly, their caseload kills them. They don't have time to do all that stuff. And it's not quite as effective. I still make the point. But what I say is to a federal jury, look, this is usually after I've talked about why the case is horseshit. I'll say, look, I'm going to tell you something. These witnesses are going to come in and they're going to be on direct examination. That means they're going to be questioned by the government. Direct examination is no different than if you go to the Fisher Theater and watch a musical. You know why? Because they've been practicing, practicing, and practicing. You're going to hear that all these witnesses have spent hours with the government going over each and every one of their questions. They know every single question before it's asked. Now, if you like the theater, maybe you'll like that. But I suggest to you that what you're going to really be interested in is when I cross-examine them. You want to know why? And by the way, just for the young lawyers, you can do that kind of stuff in opening statement. You can ask a question knowing full well that they can't answer because a lot of them will nod their head. No, I want to know. Yeah, why? Why? Because that witness doesn't know what I'm going to ask. In fact, right now, I'm not for sure. I know exactly what I'm going to ask. I'll base a lot of it on whatever I hear that comes out of his mouth. But that witness is not prepared for me. Now you'll see the witness in his or her, whichever it is, real element. And now you'll see, for instance, the street guy, the dope dealer, who's going to come across like he's a regular guy. Wait till you hear him on cross. I guarantee you, I'll tell him if it's a street guy in particular, I guarantee you, you'll see who he is once I'm done. And then blah, 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 you go on. And you do that for two reasons. Number one, obviously you want them to concentrate on you more than the prosecutor. But number two, if you don't prepare them for stuff like that, they're liable to have decided the case before you stand up. That's the problem. That's just like people who don't give forceful opening statements. You and I talked about that back in our case in front of Eddie Sosnick. If you don't get up and say, look, this is all horseshit. I mean, you can't say that, obviously, but you say it in another way. Then the jurors are, oh, God, all right, you did it. What the heck? They just told me what happened. You have to pick something that the prosecutor said, and you have to say, wait till he tries to prove that. Now, now I'm talking off the top of my head, but basically, that, that's no, how but I, but this is such an important point because, look, everything you're saying, and it's not just lawyers who listen to this show, it's also people who are interested in true crime stuff, but this is the real way it goes down, not the way it's, it's scripted in a, you know, in, in, in pulp fiction or in a movie. This is the way it is. And one of the reasons why I love talking about this, and I do love talking about this with you, but I love talking about it is because I think when people hear you talk about it, you say some things, Steve, again, you say some things that are so that once you hear them, it's almost like, wait, why didn't I invent the blanket to take to the beach that has weights in the corner so it will never flop over? But <laughs> how come I didn't invent the whatever it is, the mask I put over my, you know, there's things that once you hear about it, why didn't I invent the Listerine, you know, the Listerine breath strip? It seems so obvious. And the stuff you say, of course, is, is stuff that you do. But after you hear it, at least me, and I think there are a lot of other lawyers, after they hear it, they think to themselves, wait, how come I don't, how is it that I'm not doing that? Because it's so elementary. It seems like it's such a 
It's such a, I don't mean elementary simple, but I mean, it is so, it's just a, it's like a basic rule. It's so understandable and it breaks it down for the jury in a way that they understand. That, that's, it, that's exactly. And I heard you once get up there and you're like, look, I don't have to say anything. I can sit here and I, you know, I can play tic-tac-toe during the whole trial and I can do nothing. And if they improve the case, I could literally, someone could hit me in the shoulder and I can stand up and go, what? Oh, not guilty. And you'd have to find I'm not guilty, but I am going to get up here and do something. And when I get up here and do something, you should expect me to do something. You know what I mean? And I've heard that. And I think it is such a way of sort of in, endearing yourself. And I'm not, I know you're not looking to endear yourself, but it's a way to humanize yourself with the jury and, and, and all the while sort of bring in the burden of proof and the presumption of innocence and the roles. Um, and I thought it was really fascinating. I mean, it really is a, a, a very unique way of doing it. And um, once I heard it, I, it's almost impossible to get it out of, out of my head that that's the way it should be done. Well, so, there, there's a couple things that you're saying there, and all of them I think are true. Um, in terms of humanizing myself, I don't know if that's the word I would use. What I want to do and what any lawyer wants should want to do, I don't care if it's civil case, criminal case, prosecutor, defense, whatever, you want to make yourself the person that the jurors trust the most to tell them the truth. And you got to keep in mind, people are scared of judges a lot. And you know from being around me, I mean, I've never used the phrase your honor in 48 years. And I'll, if I do this another 48 years, I'll still never use it. Doesn't mean I don't respect the judges. I just don't believe in making it sound like they're in England, uh, you know, sitting on top of uh, whatever the name of that place is, Old Bailey. Um, so the, it's humanizing, but it's also you, you want to make objections that make sense. You want to respond to objections in a way that makes sense. You want to talk. Like we say in Yiddish, talk tachlis with them. You're telling the truth to them so that when they listen, they're thinking, hey, this guy's not here to bullshit me. Because you got to remember, jurors watch TV and they watch these crime movies and they, they kind of think the defense lawyer's job is to pull the wool over everybody's eyes. I want it to sound the opposite. Ladies and gentlemen of the jury, don't take my word for it. Mr. Rockheim testified to what I just told you. I mean, that's something that lawyers should do. They don't do it very often. But it's very important to put everything you can in somebody else's mouth. The second thing, and this is critically important, and I didn't start doing this when I was young. It took me a while. The thing that you have to emphasize to these jurors is that the, the standards that we are asking them to use are not normal. They're not normal. Presumption of innocence isn't normal. Burden of proof isn't normal. Reasonable doubt's not normal. When you're dealing with your kids or your friends or whatever it is, it's a difficult thing to do. And you have to make sure they understand that. And if you can get them to understand that, then you've done your job. You're not going to win every case, but you will win the cases where they'll come up to you afterward. You know, Mr. Fishman, I think Smith there did it, but they could not convince us beyond a reasonable doubt. So we let them go. That is the biggest compliment you can get as a lawyer. Anybody can win the cases where everybody loves the defendant, right? But it's right, those right, right. You know. Okay. So some things that I, I want to talk about, first of all, to circle back, we had talked, you had talked a moment ago about when you're up there and you're in that it's, it's important when you're examining a witness. And, and it, one of the things you had mentioned brought to mind the case that we did try together, where I was up there and I was cross-examining a very difficult, combative witness who was really um, trying to, he, if I had asked him his name, he would have said, which name? I've got several. Uh, you want to go back to my mother's side. My, he was an extremely argumentative witness. And one of the things that I thought that you 
that, that you did. And the reason why I thought of this particular witness, and I want you to walk through the story was with, with me, and you can use me as the example, was that you were watching the jury. And I was watching the witness, but I was also watching the judge who seemed like he was frustrated at times. And our co-counsel who I love, uh, who also was, you know, like, let's go, let's go, let's go. But you were watching the jury and to kind of work through how that applied in that case. And I think it's a great example of, of how watching the jury can, if you can read them, can really contribute to a, a really positive cross-examination. Well, there were a number of things in that, just so the people know exactly what it was. This guy was the key witness against you. He was an agent for somebody. He wasn't a, he was a Fed agent for somebody. And it turned out he was a lawyer and he was an asshole of the highest order. And you had him, you had done some, uh, you had an investigator take a photo and what he was claiming happened or what he claimed he could see, Will Chamberlain couldn't see. You had the pictures, you had everything. The guy acted like a complete asshole and it took forever. And he was just, as you say, he was argumentative. He wouldn't answer anything straightforward. And you were killing him. You were frustrated yourself, but you were killing him. I'm watching the jurors. And you know, when the jurors start to fold their arms like this, this is what about half of them were doing. We took a break. Uh, it was the morning break. And our third lawyer, I sat in the courtroom. You guys went to the bathroom or something like that. And you came back and you were agitated. I said, what's the matter? Well, our third lawyer said, you know, you got to get through this. This isn't blah, 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 blah. And I told you, I said, Neil, he's full of shit. You just keep doing just what you're doing and let this guy do whatever he wants because the jurors hate him. Right. And then don't yes. worry, I'm going last. I was the next one. And you finished and you had to struggle with him some more and you finished and he was destroyed. It's just he didn't know it. And if you remember, I got up and just, just so the jurors would know. And Judge Sosnick let me do it, maybe because I knew him for a long time. If you remember, it wasn't a question. I told him, agent, whatever your name is, look, here's how the thing works here. I ask questions, you answer them. Almost all of them will be answerable by yes or no. I'm not here to hear any speeches. We understand each other. And remember the guy looked, and he was a big kind of a fat guy. Remember, and he, he looked, yes. And then what did I ask him? Maybe about 20 questions. And he I think you, yes you no. said, got it. And he said, yeah, got, got it. it. <laughs> and he goes, got it. Yeah, and, and the reason is, so is that the witness was giving, and, and this was just, this was something that I'll admit, the witness was giving me so much, giving us so much by the fact that he was arguing, but I was growing uncomfortable with the way that it made me feel, which <laughs> I wasn't reading the room at that moment about how, I mean, he was dying, death by a thousand cuts, the guy every time he argued was, but you were like, look, just keep going. And that leads to a point about when the witness is giving you something, don't, and, and you and I've talked about this and I want you to give us some examples. Don't rush through it. Don't hustle through when the witnesses, when the witnesses repeatedly stabbing himself with your assistance, don't just take the knife out and say, let's move on, right? That's exactly right. And the, the flip side of that, I think is what you're getting at. There are too many lawyers who don't recognize that some of the government witnesses, generally police officers or agents help us. And the prosecutor doesn't necessarily even know why they help. But the most obvious example, and I've had it in homicide cases, I can't tell you how many times, particularly identification is the issue. Somebody gets killed, you know, on Seven Mile and North Lawn. The police show up, the witnesses are there. The police take a statement from witness number one, who turns out to be the star witness that identifies the defendant. Part of the statement that they take is a description of the shooter. Turns out when you come to court, the defendant's 5'10", 170. And that witness described the shooter as six foot four, 230. 
uh, to that police officer. Now, the police officer files her police report, forgets about the case because, in, particularly in the city, they got nine million things they got to do. By the time the case comes to trial five months later, they've done who knows what. They don't really have that much of a recollection. What do we all know for sure? What are they going to do? They're going to take their PCR, their preliminary complaint report. They're going to read it. They're going to put it in their hand like it was their baby. They're going to carry it up to the witness stand with them, and they're going to sit there with it. And we know a second thing. We know, as sure as we're sitting here talking, they're never going to say anything other than what they wrote in their PCR, right? So since identification is the issue, what you do is that person, that police officer comes in, the ID witness has already testified, you've already cross-examined. Some of them will deny they gave a different description. Some of them will half-ass admit it. But no, nobody ever really says that they, oh, yeah, I was off by six inches and 60 pounds. Nobody ever is going to say that. But you've got that issue out there for the jury. Now comes the police woman. Now, lawyers who haven't done enough of this, they ask her like four questions. Did you, were you there? Did you take a report? What description did they give? And they go, Thank you very much. Now, okay, you got it out. But look what you've passed up. You've passed up the opportunity to take that female police officer from the day she went to the academy and what she learned in the academy and about how to write police reports and the importance of police reports and the importance of having accuracy when you get a description because you know your sergeant and then your lieutenant are going to look at it and put their stamp on it. Eventually, you know the prosecutor is going to get it and that prosecutor is going to rely on that description. So you would make absolutely sure anytime you take a police report, you write a police report, when you get descriptions, you make sure it's accurate. If you don't understand or hear the guy, you ask him to repeat it, right? And they'll go along, yep, 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 yep. Now, Officer Jones, let me bring you to December the 14th over there at 18679 North Lawn. And she goes, mm-hmm. And you have your report in your hand, don't you? Yes. And that's the, what we've been talking about. You write reports like that every time you do something. Yes, I do. And you bring them with you to court, don't you? Yes, I do. Because you have a lot of work in the city of Detroit. You ain't getting cast out of trees like they do out in Bloomfield. You're going from violent incident to pistols to whatever. Right. So you write all that down, don't you? Yes. Now, I want you, you feel free anytime you want. You take a look at your report to refresh your memory because nobody thinks you can remember everything that you wrote down five months ago. Oh, that's wonderful, Mr. Fishman. Yes, I will. Now, you remember talking to Smith? Yeah, I sure do. Take a look at your report. What time did you talk to him? How long after the incident? You asked him for a description, right? Right. Because <laughs> you really wanted a description so you could put it out on the air, right? Right. And then you could have to give it to the homicide officers so they know who they're looking for, right? Tell us what you wrote. And then you just sit there. And, she, you know, it's going to take... Um, six foot four, 240 pounds, black male, curly hair, whatever. But you, what you want is that size. And then you say, thanks, officer. Have a nice day. And they smile because they're so happy. You've been treating them like saints. You know what I'm saying? Police officers come to the court expecting defense lawyers to get all over them, cross-examine them, accuse them of lying, accusing them of being the shit of the shit. When you treat them like saints because they don't know what you're looking for until you get to the end. And then, and, and then, of course, in closing argument, what do you say? I'm not telling you that the guy described at 6-4-2-2. Remember Officer Jones? Remember her? Was, could you find a better witness? And you wind up making their witnesses your witness, and that's a big deal. I can and, tell and, you, Danny. And something else that you, as I'm listening, I just for those that are listening, if you ever were to pause this podcast and just try to think back right now, 
if you hit pause and try to think back to the two different ways that you did it, Steve, one would be where you had four questions that the defense lawyer asked. There's nobody that could even remember any of the details because there's no setup. There's no reinforcement. I don't want to say looping. There's no, there's no scene building. There's no visual. There's no, you haven't created any visual imagery with those four questions. What you did though, was create a visual image of a police officer investing so much time and thought. So the jurors could slow down and they could hear it. Who, who's going to argue with them now? I mean, They've had a picture of this cop. And as you're going through it, they are imagining this officer out there with, you know, okay, this is really important now. How tall was the guy? I'm writing it in my book. I want to make sure I got it right. That's how, and that's the visual image they get. And it's, it's that sort of stuff that brings the trial, in my opinion, to life. And something else you do that is another example, and I'm sure you got a million examples like that, but I know lawyers don't do that. They're almost afraid for whatever reason, or they haven't thought of it, or they don't build, they just don't, they don't allow themselves the chance to take advantage of that powerful, that dialogue and to, to build that visual imagery, that exchange. And you've done it in other cases where there are witnesses that have written a word or written somewhere else. And I want you to talk about that a bit. So, for example, I know there are situations where lawyers have, um, you've gotten your hands on a letter, for example. And the witness is, is there's something in the letter that you know that you can use. And there was a case that I think we had talked about a, a little bit ago. There's two that I know about specifically. One with, well, three, really. One with the guy that had referred to his mother as a dumbass. <laughs> <laughs> but that's important because, because you, you, you didn't just come out and say you're an awful, horrible person. You know, you referred your mom as a dumbass. You set it up. With the guy's oh. own words. So well, walk me through a couple of times. And there's a lesson here. And I want you to tell us what the lesson is. Because I think lawyers can really use this to help themselves, you know, develop some real powerful contrast with the questions and then the witness's own words. What, what people have to keep in mind is it's, it's not common that we're going to have something like what you just referred to, where the guy wrote a letter saying his mother was a dumbass and a couple of the other ones that I'll briefly touch on. It's not often that you get something like that, but I would analogize it to the PCR of the police officer that destroys the identification testimony of the identifying witness, because what you're trying to do is you've got something, and the question is, how do you use it? An inexperienced lawyer, if he had that letter, would just say, hey, and you, you think your mother's a dumbass, and the guy would say whatever he was, or you wrote a letter saying that. If you remember in our case, that's the same case, obviously, as the one with the big fat guy, uh, I let him down the primrose path. You love your mom. Oh, yeah. And you think she's terrific, don't you? And remember, I don't remember exactly what I asked him. Yeah, pretty said, much well, that. Well, maybe you can explain to the jury, sir, why would you have written the following? And then I read it to him, remember? Yeah, you and said, do you, have any, do, you have any, um, do you have any terms of endearment that you, <laughs> yeah, you used for your mom? Like and she was there for you. When you needed someone to call, when you were looking to get bonded out and to get a lawyer, you called her because she's your mom, because you could trust her, because she's you know, because she's your mom. She'll be there for you. And you, you have any special words you use to describe your mom? And then he's sitting there. He couldn't remember. <laughs> and then you just hit him. Yeah. But it was so powerful because you created a contrast. Yeah. And, and it's important also, by the way, for lawyers to understand that, particularly in federal court, um, you can look at the court file. And sometimes you'll find things in the court file uh, on two different occasions in federal court 
Well, one was not in the court file. One, I tried a case I told you about with Ben Gannick and Ben found it. And it was a dope case. And the star witness was from Ohio and he was selling dope with our guy. My, ben had the woman and I had the guy. And he came in and he testified about that. And, you know, I did the normal cross-exam and I had that kind of stuff. But Ben had found a letter he had written to Judge Friedman, which, of course, he had completely forgotten about. And in the letter, trying to gain sympathy from the judge, he described himself as a junkie and how he'd been a user all his life and poor, pitiful me, like Linda Ronstead would sing. So I saved that for the end. And instead of just saying, and you wrote this letter, you asshole, that, that wouldn't, it, it had been humorous, but it wasn't, wouldn't have been effective. I went through a whole routine with him. And yeah, and you were selling dope with your friends. I didn't mention our people, obviously. You were selling dope with your friends there. And you guys used to laugh about the junkies, didn't you? And the guy goes, yeah, because you would never use drugs. No, I've never used drugs because drugs are for idiots, right? They get high, they get sick. Yeah, you would never do anything. I went on for five or 10 minutes with him telling me how awful it was and how he would never, ever do it in life. And whatever I felt was the right time. And I remember Ross Parker and Bruce Judge, two fabulous prosecutors. They didn't know I had it because I don't have to show it to them because I didn't introduce it as evidence. <laughs> they were sitting and they were wondering, I'm sure, where it was going. And I said, well, then... Maybe you can explain to the jury why you wrote the following to Judge Friedman. And I just read up the stuff he had written about him being a junkie. And of course, the guy was speechless. I mean, he, he really couldn't give an answer. And a good thing for people to keep in mind, when the witness is speechless, you, you know, if you haven't tried it, one minute of silence in court feels like it's 30 minutes, right? Two minutes, I let him go for a long time. You sit there. And I'm looking at him and the jurors are looking at him like this. And after about a minute or so, I said, uh, I can't remember his name. Are you thinking? And the guy, the jurors bust out laughing, you know, and he looked and he just, that was the end of it. Same thing with the other one. I think I told you about where I had a letter that the guy had written to somebody and he was a great snitch. He was a sociopathic guy, but brilliant. And he had claimed he had cooperated fully with the feds and turned over all this property and money and forfeiture, et cetera. And I had a letter that he had written detailing all the things he had hidden and where they were and what people should do with them. And of course, I did the same thing with him. Waited, 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 and then finished with that. <clears throat> why, why does it matter? Because we have to keep this in mind at all times. It's not just to entertain people. Our position always is the guy's a liar. If you're cross-examining a cooperator, it's not good enough to show he's an asshole. Because keep in mind, he's friends with your asshole. And that's not going to work. You have to show he's a lying asshole. Because... A lot of lawyers think it's enough to show the guys, no, God, you've been convicted four times, haven't you? Yeah, I've been convicted four times. And you've, you've been selling drugs. Yeah, I sell drugs. Fine. He's saying that your guy's the same as him. He's not, you know, coming out there pretending he's a choir boy. But if you can show he's a lying asshole, that's when you have a good chance. So that's the summary of all so, No, but one of the things that, I, that I've noticed is I have the advantage, of course, of, of you know, feeling like you're one of my mentors and someone that I look up to and talk to frequently um, and, and having actually seen you in trial. But for those that don't, a lot of these moments that you're describing, they have elements of humor in them. Um, and, and tell me, I, I, I'm not saying that you turned it into a vaudeville act or turn it into a, um, into a, a comedy hour. Cause there's a lot of serious and stuff, serious stuff going on there. But you do use humor in, I, in your court cases. I, I think it's the, the biggest advantage of the defense lawyer over the prosecutor. And you've been both. So you know this. 
If prosecutors start, act, start acting like wise guys or something like that, jurors don't like it. And for obvious reasons, you're the state, you've got all the power, you've got the police, you've got this and that and the other. As a defense lawyer, you, you've got to read the jury, you got to read your case, and you got to read the judge. There are some judges who, like Judge John O'Brien in the old days in recorder's court, he was, he was a funny guy, a jokester. He liked jokes. So there was nothing that was too much if you're in a trial in front of him. Some judges are much more serious, you know, and then you got to be a little more careful. You can still use humor, but you got to be a little more careful about it. Um, I think the, the use of a little bit of humor is something you want to wait until you're a little older and more experienced to do. I wouldn't suggest the guy in his second trial getting up and starting to tell jokes or something like that, because you just don't have the savoir-faire about it at that time. But I think what humor used the right way can do is it's another way to not just humanize yourself, but to make, especially if it's self-deprecating humor, uh, to get the jurors to start thinking, hey, you know, this guy's a truth teller. I'm sure you remember in that same case that we're talking about, we were in about the 20th day or whatever long it took. And the prosecutor asked the question, which was completely innocuous. And you were to my right and you got up and objected. And I was sitting, I didn't even stand up. And Judge Sosnick was right in front of me. I said, overruled, sit down, Neil. And everybody <laughs> cracked up laughing. And the judge laughed, the jurors laughed. You sat down, they kept going. And, you know, it just kind of fit with the moment. The jurors had had enough already. We were late in the afternoon. The question, it probably was technically objectionable, but it didn't mean crap. No, but 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 it was it was good. I, I don't, it was more than good shtick. It was I got up to object to something and you were like, no, overruled. Sit down, Neil. And then the judge laughed and says, is there any room for me in here or something like that? Oh, yeah, right. <laughs> That's what I'm not right. supposed to do. <laughs> and then we chuckled and it created a really it, it wasn't planned at all. It wasn't like it was like a, a Laurel and Hardy skit. It was just, it was just the way you and I were at that moment. And but it worked, and the jurors laughed. And I, I know I keep going back to the same same trial. Um, I know you've got a great story about in front of Judge Laplata where you had a pretty hilarious story about uh, that where you were able to inject some humor in the case. Um, and in our case, you did when we were comparing my cross examination uh, and, and yours. We had we had hundreds it seemed like thousands of pages with lines of 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 uh, what was it uh phone records and you found a way to inject humor in that i was trying to dissect it line by line and point out the, in, the insignificance of it or the significance of it and and then you got up there in your pretty classic way and you in a, in a matter of like 10 questions just you know it wasn't, it wasn't 10 they, might as well, they might as well burn that stuff they might have to just lit fire to it. When you, when you got done, it was a Friday afternoon at about 3.30. Everybody was tired. And you got done, having painstakingly gone through these. And I had a big stick that you had given me. It was sitting in front of me. And the officer, he had a sense of humor himself. I remember I, I looked at him. I said, Lieutenant, I said, you know what we're going to do? And he's looking at me and the jurors are looking. We, you and I are going to go through each and every one of these pages it, in detail. What do you think about that? And he looked at me and he said, I know your license plate number. I remember that. <laughs> Everybody bust out laughing. I said, no more questions. And we all went home for the weekend. That I do and one of the beauties of that was, again, it wasn't, I, I, I doubt it was something that you woke up in the morning thinking that at the end of the day, I'm going to, I know it wasn't. You didn't wake up in the morning and think, you know what, at the end of the day, 
I'm going to drop this line on, on this witness and the jury. I was going through these exhibits trying to show how they really didn't prove very much. I mean, they didn't prove anything. And I was doing it in detail. And you got up there. And, and I don't know if you thought of that before. I guess was, I guess I should probably ask you. Had you thought of it before? No, absolutely you think not. of it as I was up there asking, watching the jury? and I was watching the jurors and they were fighting. Not so much to stay awake, but you could just, you know, those were long days. And you remember yes. the way they had the courtroom set up. These guys were foreigners, so they were locked up. And there were a ton of cops. It's a small courtroom. It was an uncomfortable place. And they were they they were ready to go home. And you you had asked everything and you had shown. And the guy had pretty much agreed. No, there's nothing here. I don't even know why the prosecutors put him on to tell you the truth, which was part of why I did what I did. There was nothing about the records that were relevant to this anyway. Uh, so that was it. You know? But but that's I guess that's the that's a point that is worth. It wasn't planned. You, there is a plan in the case, which I want to talk about, but that moment wasn't planned, but it was a really fine way to, to take advantage of the late hour. The fact that the jurors were tired, it was just nonsense detail that was way over the top. And you ended up, you know, as opposed to another hour of going through the, the records you were able to sort of com communicate to the jury, like, this is really just silliness. So let's move on to something more substantial. Well, I, I think that all the things that you're asking me about, I'll, I'll point back to the same thing that we discussed at the beginning, which is you got to read the jury the best you can, and you got to try to do what you can to make them comfortable. You have to keep in mind, lawyers must keep in mind that when jurors come there, three out of four of them are on edge totally. They've, it's, it's a totally unique situation for them. A lot of them don't want to be there. A lot of them have all kinds of goofy ideas about what might happen. And the more comfortable you can make them, the better chance you have of them listening to what you have to say and applying the standards that we have to get them to apply that do not apply in everyday life for them. And then, you know, hopefully come to a verdict, find reasonable doubt. I don't think it's a good idea. If you've got jittery jurors, I can't imagine very many of those are in favor of the defendant. You know what I'm saying? I think that they're there. Oh, God, let's get this over with. Let's get, convict this guy and get the hell out of here. You got to give them reasons why they shouldn't. And that's that's basically my. Steve, do you have um, do you have a plan when you sort of set out when you try a case? Do you have a plan when you begin your cross-examination of a witness? And do those things, if you do, do those things ever change in the middle of, of the trial? I would say this, you can never say never about anything, but to the extent that I can control it, which would be 98.7% of the trials that I've had, I not only have a plan, I begin to implement the plan. Everybody has to have a plan, every defense lawyer. There's no way you're going to win a jury trial saying, I have an alibi for this murder, but just in case I did it, I was crazy. I mean, you're just not going to win like that. So once you develop what your theory of the case, I wouldn't necessarily call it a plan. It's your job to express that theory of the case every single time you stand up, starting with voir dire, if you're allowed voir dire, opening statement, cross-examination. If you have to put on witnesses, the same thing with, you're not putting on witnesses to start talking about things that don't lead the jurors to think, hey, I got a reasonable doubt about this guy. Closing argument, you should be able to stand up and say, you should be able to start, well, it depends, I start different every time, but you should definitely be able to say, look, nothing's changed. You remember what I started talking to you about in Vordir? Remember my opening statement? What did I tell you? I told you that you wouldn't believe this guy, and here's the reasons you wouldn't believe him. And what's happened? 
<laughs> you don't believe him. And here's why you don't believe him. Cause officer Smith came in and said, the guy was six, four, two forty. You have to have a plan. It's painful. And I've had very many judge friends tell me the same thing. It is painful for us as lawyers or for a judge to watch and for jurors to watch a lawyer who gets up and thinks that she's going to be able to wander all over the place and change her theory and all that kind of stuff. Every now and then, very rarely, as I said, 98% of the cases, no. Maybe there's going to be something that comes up you don't know about, but you know as well as I do. We got a pretty damn good idea what's coming when we go into it. Because not to mention the discovery obligations on the prosecutor, most prosecutors want to resolve the case. So they're happy to tell you, look, I've got four guys who are going to say blah, 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 blah. So you, you know what's coming and you should have a theory that you can use consistently from voir dire through closing. All right. So I, I've, I gave you a bit of an uh, advanced teaser, full disclosure here. I want to teaser, I guess, uh, uh, <laughs> that there are some questions that I like to ask people to sort of, you know, get an idea of if we could summarize who they are as a, as a lawyer. And I've come up with, with, with a few and I'm interested in your, in your answers. Cause I know you've spent some time probably thinking about these answers cause that's who you are. So first um, what's the favorite, what's your favorite kind of witness to cross-examine? It's not even close for me. That doesn't mean it's the case for everybody else. For me, it's a guy off the streets because the guys off the streets speak the same language as me. The guys off the streets, uh, I have a decent idea as to what they'll agree with 100% of the time. It might have nothing to do with uh, their allegations against the defendant. And they know me as well. You know, I'm talking about if we're in the city or around Detroit. And I think that they all know that they pretty much need to not screw around because if they screw around, they're going to look like even bigger assholes than they already are. So I find that, that the street guys, and to be more specific about it so the, your audience knows, street guys will all tell you a lot of things that help you, which is number one, lying is routine. Nobody sells the truth in the street. A big dope dealer pretends he's a little dope dealer. A little dope dealer pretends he's a big dope dealer. Guys in the streets can have phony ID down to different addresses, different kids, different everything. And they can sit and answer questions from police, never, ever break a sweat. And I'll ask them that. Say, you know, you've been stopped with phony ID while you're on parole, right? Right. And you know, if they know who you are, you're done, right? Yeah. And the guy, the officer's there with you 15 minutes and you answer all kinds of questions, don't you? Do you start sweating? And they'll look at me. No, of course not. Because you're so used to lying. It's easy for you, right? Right. So, for instance, when you sit here and answer questions today, no matter how many lies you tell, you're not going to start sweating. And the guy will go, you're right. <laughs> you know, so, I mean, they're the best guys to make, to make it simple. They're the easiest guys. Okay. And have you had any? I know you have, and you probably are. But if you can think of one um, particular type of, uh, we'll call it the, the gotcha moment or the you can't handle the truth type moment where you actually get so deep into a witness that the witness actually tells you something that just blows your mind. Like that, that the, the, the earth stops turning. Everybody had, and goes, wow, did he just actually get that guy to admit that? I, I've had two that I can think of that are, that are that way, the kind that you would really think were on TV or in a movie. And it's not yeah. because of anything particular that I did. It was just interesting the way it worked. 
I cross-examined a guy in a murder case and I cross-examined him for a long time, which is unusual for me. And, and literally there was a lot to work with. And he admitted lying about this, lying about that, lying about this. And at the end of about an hour and 15 minutes of cross-exam, I figured it was the right time. And I looked at him. It was a young kid. And I said, Mr. Smith, you'd agree with me that you wouldn't trust your own self beyond a reasonable doubt, would you? And the kid sat there and he said, no. And the jurors eyes got big and my eyes only because I've been doing it for a while. I was ready to fall over the audience. There were people, there were judges in the audience too. And everybody was like, I said, and I didn't even say anything. I just sat down. And the second one was a guy in a really crazy murder case in front of Terry Boyle, where the guy was lying, lying, lying. And I had him going each way and that way. And I went, um, I'm not sure. I don't know what the, makeup of your audiences, but in, in the city, what we would say about a lie is that if a guy lied, then he'd have to maybe tell another lie because you're trying to make the lie live. And everybody everybody from the city knows what it is. I had a juror, jury full of Detroiters. I had a Detroit kid on the, on the stand. And I went through all these different lies he was telling. And then I was right at the end and I said, you know, Mr. Brown, uh, you know about the phrase of trying to make a lie live. And he goes, yeah. And what that means, so people who might not know, it means that you've told one lie, now you got to tell another one. Now you got to tell another one trying to make that lie live. Right? Right. You'd agree with me in this instance, it didn't work, did it? And the guy goes, nah. <laughs> and, that was, <laughs> and that was another one. I just looked at him, you know, the jurors all across the line. That was the end of that case right there. He said, nah, no. it didn't work. Sometimes um, no matter what you do, you can't make the lie live. Right. And this, this was one of those times. Yep. I mean, I, there's a, one other amazing story from a case that we had where I thought you just at the end, you got we gotten a hold of you gotten a hold of a letter. And you looked at this kid member on the stand and he had sent a letter to one of the co-defendants in the case saying that uh, you're going to it was oh, just yeah. so perfect. <laughs> yeah, that, 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 was a, that was a question of, of the use of pronouns. Uh, the defendant, he had been a defendant, turned cooperating witness, he had pled guilty, and got the brilliant idea to write a letter to the third defendant, that Neil's or mine, telling him, don't worry about anything, I'm going to get on the stand, I'll get you acquitted, you'll be found not guilty, you'll be going home, everything will be all right. And the that defendant gave it to his lawyer, gave it to me, and I told him, let me deal with it. And I asked the guy about it. You wrote letters from jail, didn't you? Yeah. You know, same thing. You got to lead up to it, lead up to it. And then I said, and here's what, and you wrote, you'll be fine talking to the other defendant, whatever his name was. And then I looked at him and I said, uh, the, the thing you seem to have done here, you confused your pronouns, didn't you? You meant to say, I'll be fine. And the best is when you said you'll I be. won't go to jail. And one of the things I love about it is, is that you it was it was humorous, but it really set it up. And you you asked him, so you you got your pronouns wrong, right. right? And of course, the guy sat there looking at you like, yeah, what do you mean? What the hell is this guy talking about? Well, you said you said you'll be going home soon. You meant I'll be going home soon, right? That's so right. all right, and those are some great gotcha moments. And I'm sure you probably got you know another gazillion. We could probably work through funny moments in court, but. The big lead up here is I call this like the, this was my Gordo Cooper moment, you know, from the, the right stuff. So other than you and who is the best cross examiner 
that you've ever seen. So if you say, this is the guy, if I had best cross-examine you've ever seen dead or alive. That, that, that's an easy one. Otis Culpepper. When we were young, starting, we worked at the Defenders together. And then when we went out on our own, we started representing large drug gangs and drug dealers. And Otis basically had the Young Boys Incorporated, who were the initial big dope, dope gang in, in the city that used the kids. And I represented a group called the Pony Boys. Uh, it was Pony Down Boys. And we tried, he tried them. We had cases together sometimes. And oh, it was the same way. He had the same attitude that I did. Uh, he had a way of approaching the witness. Uh, you'd have to see it to watch it, but he, he was terrific. It, it just a great cross-examiner and a wonderful lawyer as well. But he, he knew the streets and when those street guys would get up there and he knew the cops too. You know, it's, it's not always street guys. He just, he was comfortable in his own skin. I mean, he is, I don't want to make it sound like he's dead. He's still a wonderful cross-examiner, I'm sure, although we haven't had a case together in years. All right. If there was one person, dead or alive, that you could pick, and you can pick more than one if you want to, um, that you would want to cross-examine and want to know who they are and want, want you to tell me why. What would you do and why? Well, the, the obvious one, but I'm just taking a wild guess and saying that other guests of yours have said it. The obvious one would be Donald Trump because he is such a flaming asshole. And not to mention being a career criminal, that he would be fun to cross-examine. But since I'm sure people have said that, I have a tie for the two that I would pick. One would be Lindsey Graham, and the other would be Kevin McCarthy. And the reason for that, and the reason that they would be better targets, even better targets than Trump, is that unlike Trump, because he is a career criminal, he doesn't put anything in writing. He doesn't use email. This is what I understand from reading, because he's a criminal, and he knows that those are the kinds of things. Again, when you have a criminal mind, you avoid those kinds of things because you know they can come back and bite you in the butt. Those two guys, given the statements that they've made on television, mind you, including in their speeches at the Congress after the insurrection, January the 6th, and then how they flip back and forth when you talk about being able to have material for cross-examination. What could be more fun than to cross-examine those two pricks? I mean, it just would be too much fun. So those are my guys. They'd even be better than Trump because, again, they're, they're, they're just, they're not criminals. They're just psychophants. And as psychophants, they're not just psychophants to Trump, they're psychophants to everyone. They never have an original thought. So whatever they think helps them the most, the day of the insurrection, they figure, well, I better look like I'm opposed to this. And then when they go like this and take the temperature, oh, wait a minute, these crazy people still love this guy. Oh, no, I was kidding. Or I forgot I said that. But in court, remember, with your hand up in the air and with the judge sitting there and with you as the lawyer, they can't blah, 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 and walk away like they do from the TV cameras. They'd have to answer questions. So those are my two guys, two totally towering assholes, I might add. All right. So, Steve, what lies ahead for you? Do you see yourself ever retiring? If somebody did want to reach out to you and want to, to, to get a hold of you, how would they do it? Um, <laughs> they call your office. Would they, should they just lose your number? Would they uh, email you? Uh, could they just you know, send out like a smoke signal. If someone wanted to reach out to you, how would they do it? Well, let, let, I'll answer the second question first. Reaching out to me is really simple. I have one phone number. I don't have an office phone. I don't have a secretary. I don't have a receptionist. I don't have any support staff. My cell phone, which by the way is a flip phone, is in the bar journal and I hand it out to everybody. The cops know it, the agents know it, the U.S. attorneys know it, everybody. So what you can't do though, 
is text me because I don't believe in that. It's one of the many reasons I have a flip phone. So yes, you can call me on my flip phone or you can send me an email and I get back to people pretty quickly on there. That's how you get a hold of me. Your first question was, what am I going to do in the future? You know, I'll, I'll be 73 in March. Uh, as long as I'm healthy, I'll probably continue to work during the pandemic, those first three months or so. My wife and I had to sit, you know, in the house. We've had a long, very nice marriage, but we never spent all that much time together, you know, during the day. And we were getting on each other's nerves, to say the least. So I don't want to do that to my wife. Uh, I don't take state court cases. I don't take any cases uh, where people are in jail because I've been to enough jails. So I restrict myself to federal court if you're not locked up. And that's a fairly pleasant way to do it. I park my car once in my parking lot. I walk to the federal building and I can walk back. And everybody in the streets kind of knows. Uh, I get a call every now and then, guy trying to persuade me with a lot of dough or something like that to go to uh, state court. But until they learn how to run a courthouse that has more consideration for the lawyers, time, uh, I have no interest in going there. I don't know how you guys do it, to tell you the truth. Uh, having a whole cattle call at 8.30 in the morning and the judge gets there at 10 to 10 and calls your case at 11.15, that ain't for me at 72. Well, I appreciate that. So, Steve, you know that I uh, consider you one of my mentors. There's few people that I would um, um, look if you ask me who's the best cross examiner I've ever seen, I would say you, which is a high compliment uh, for me. Hell of a compliment. Um, so, uh, it was uh, a long time coming for me to have you on the podcast. I'm so glad you're here. I could probably talk to you for four hours, but nobody wants to hear me talk for four hours or me talk to you for four hours, probably most of all you. So, uh, <laughs> fact of the matter is, it's been a real honor to have you uh, and uh, at least take this uh, hour or so and kind of go through your career and some cases. And uh, if after listening to this podcast, if you haven't picked up any tips at all on how to cross-examine, you really should probably do something else because there's <laughs> a... There is a there is a treasure trove of information here if people listen to it to get an idea of how Steve goes about doing it. And uh, it's such a really it's a great way to combine. It's his personality, but it's really effective. And uh, I'm really honored that you're here, Steve. So uh, again, this is Neil Rockheim, the Killer Cross-Examination Podcast. And you know, Steve Fishman, nothing else needs to be said. That's it, period. Thanks, it was a lot of fun. <laughs>